Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Togjan Kaseneva, the author of Atomic Step, How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb. So Togjan, thank you so much for joining us. Lee, it's such a pleasure to be on your podcast. My first question has to do with your writing process. This was a book that took a long time to come together. So I would love it if you could give my listeners a peek into what it took for you to write this book. This book took me 15 years. It's probably a very severe case of procrastination on one hand, uh, but on the other, I think I needed all this time because I evolved as, as a writer I changed how I approached writing my book and the final result, I think, is what I truly wanted but didn't know in the beginning. Uh, Initially, I was approaching this as an academic, as a fresh PhD in political science person who wanted to check how IR theories work in, in case of Kazakhstan's denuclearization and its decision to give up its nuclear inheritance. But the more I traveled to the region where the Soviet military conducted nuclear tests, the more I met survivors of nuclear tests, the more I realized that it's impossible to tell a political or diplomatic story without looking back to the Soviet period, without paying attention to the people on the ground who suffered during the Soviet period, who absorbed the cost of the Soviet nuclear weapons program. I also changed the style of how I was writing. I wanted to get rid of academic, dry style of writing. And I signed up for all the courses I could find on how to write like a normal person, creative nonfiction writing. And so the final result is something very different. It's a book that I hope will be accessible to readers beyond uh, the nuclear field or Central Asian history or Soviet history. So in the last few months, a lot of people in the United States who had not paid any attention to the former Soviet republics have gone on a little bit of a crash course, but they still may not know much about Kazakhstan. Could you tell my listeners a little bit about Kazakhstan's background, what it is like? I found a lot of your descriptions really powerful because I grew up in Illinois which is on the prairie. And a lot of what you talked about when it comes to the steppe really resonated with me. Although, you know, we had no, we had no mountains, but could you describe Kazakhstan a little bit for their listeners? Lee, thank you so much for bringing the parallels between some of the landscape in the United States and in in Kazakhstan. I just got back from Arizona and looking at the desert also and having all this space. I live in Washington, D.C., so I only see the buildings. And and, and so being in, in any open space reminds me of Kazakhstan. Uh, And I'll explain why. We have lots of space. It's the ninth largest country in the world. But we are only a population of 18, 19 million. And so I would say space is the first feature that is very recognizable about Kazakhstan. It's in the heart of Eurasia. Geographically, uh, part of it is in Europe and, uh, and a larger part in Asia. We are at the crossroads of very different cultures. It's a very multi-ethnic society. We were 
part of the Soviet Union until 1991. And for the last 30 years, we've been independent. And, and Kazakhstan is, a, I think, is a very interesting place, primarily because of this mixture of cultures and different influences, its location, and I think it, it's a true melting pot of, of different cultures and religions and people with different backgrounds. So in the 1940s, when the Soviet Union was setting up its nuclear program or continuing its nuclear program, they were looking for areas that they could test nuclear weapons in. And it sounds to me from the book like they came to Kazakhstan and instead of recognizing that, no, these lands were inhabited, they were used, nomadic tribes went through them all the time, they saw the space and they said, oh, great, it's empty. And it just, it just wasn't so, but Kazakhstan was chosen to be the site of a lot of these tests. So could you talk about how that impacted the ethnic Kazakhs or the people who came to work in these very secret military installations. What was it like in the 1950s when the site was chosen? When the Soviet military was thinking about where to test nuclear weapons, and they were rushing, they wanted to equalize with the United States that, you know, by, by that time already dropped two uh, atomic bombs on, on Japan. And, and so they were in a rush. They wanted to make sure they also had a nuclear weapon of their own. And when they were going through this process of identifying a place that would be suitable, they would only think about very practical, almost mechanical parameters. Is, uh, is there enough construction materials, sand, water? Uh, what's the location? Is it close enough to transport a hub so that we can move people and equipment, but also at the same time not too close because they were worried about foreign espionage? They, they looked at all those factors and gave no thought whatsoever to people. As you've correctly mentioned, they, they spoke about the area as though it was completely uninhabited, which wasn't true. Not only the local communities used the exact land for pastures, but there were rural settlements right there. And for me, as a Kazakh, it, it was really painful to read all those documents from the Soviet period and, and read about those discussions about the land that is so special to Kazakhs, noticing that there was complete disregard, not only to people, but also to, to the historic and cultural value of, of this land. I will just mention very briefly for your audience. For some reason, this land gave us our best and most famous writers, poets, people from the education field. It's, it's a very special area in Kazakhstan. And, and so the first atomic nuclear test was conducted in 1949. And very quickly, within within a few years, it became very clear that local people started suffering from the impact of ionizing radiation. They started getting sick. They started developing cancers. Uh, within a few years, Women started giving birth to babies with severe and visible uh, disabilities. 
And but all of that was happening in the context of complete secrecy, complete denial that something bad was happening to to locals. But I do want to mention that local populations, civilians, were not the only victims of the program. It's important to remember that those who were sent by the Soviet government to build the testing grounds or those who came to work on the testing program, they were also, I would say, in a way, victims of the of the system because they worked in very harsh conditions, especially in the beginning of the program in the 50s. And very little regard was given to their own safety as well, but even less thought was given to the local communities. And you yourself, you have a personal connection to Kazakhstan, of course, but also to the nuclear scientists and studies uh, within Kazakhstan. Could you tell us about your father and how he inspires your own work? Thank you so much for asking this question. I was born to a family which had deep roots in the region that I'm describing. Uh, my father's family lived for a long time in the city of Semipalatinsk, which is about 75 miles away from the testing grounds. Even my name has uh, has a direct connection to the region because, as I've mentioned, many famous writers of Kazakhstan, they come from the region, and one of them is Abai. And uh, my name, Takjan, it, it's dedicated to the, his first love. <laughs> so even in my name, I'm very attached uh, to the region. There is this connection, but then also my father was one of the key foreign policy advisors to the new government of Kazakhstan. When Kazakhstan received its independence in 1991, there were so many very difficult issues that a new country had to resolve, and nuclear inheritance was one of them. And my father was the founder of Kazakhstan's first think tank, and nuclear issues were not the only challenge he was working on, but a nuclear portfolio was um, one of the questions he was very interested in, and uh, that was very important for Kazakhstan, and he worked on that. And unfortunately, my father passed away at a very young age, and I think for me, for both personal and professional reasons, it was important to follow his footsteps and the choice of my career in the field of nuclear diplomacy and nuclear politics was very much motivated by trying to 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 follow his footsteps and to continue uh, his work and and but also on another level i felt that being born into this family and been exposed to some of the discussions of those early 1990s. I, I was small, so I am, I'm sure I, I don't remember the details, but just being in that context, I felt that it was my mission now as a professional, as an expert on nuclear politics, to, to tell the story of my country and tell it with a nuance and as objectively as I could as a scholar. And It was a tribute both to my late father, but also to my native land and to the people of Kazakhstan. 
And I'm glad you brought up the word nuance, because as I was reading Atomic Step, it became very clear that, you know, this was not necessarily a, a black and white story of only oppressors and victims. You know, Kazakhs did not simply acquiesce to everything that was happening. Uh, Kazakhstan, the people of Kazakhstan, even before their country gained independence, were pushing back against this nuclear testing. They saw what was happening and they became activists. And so I would love to hear about that period of time that you describe so eloquently in the book and the connection that it has to the United States. Speaking about nuance, I, I just feel that I have such immense luxury as a scholar, as somebody who never worked uh, for, for any government, who is not confined by restrictions of geopolitics or diplomacy or any government line. It really meant a lot to me that I could tell the story with the kind of nuance I felt the story deserved. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful that you think that it came through. I truly didn't want to portray everything in, a, in black and white. I didn't want to for, portray, for example, Soviet scientists as some kind of villains uh, that, you know, did those experiments for no reason because we understand that they themselves, they felt pride in what they were doing and they were thinking that they worked on a project that was extremely important for the national security of their countries. So even on that, you know, even though I'm, I'm Kazakh and of course my, my empathy is very much with the local people, I also wanted to make sure that I portray the struggles of uh, scientists and also their scientific accomplishments. But speaking about the anti-nuclear movement, I think it's just such a wonderful and inspiring story. So the test continued for 40 years, but during those 40 years, until the late 1980s, it was almost impossible to protest against the program on a massive scale. Uh, I would just remind the audience that, that was the Soviet Union. Everything was very much controlled. And so it's only with the arrival of a more reform-oriented Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, that some dissent became possible. It also coincided with this uh, growing national identity within Kazakhstan, when people of Kazakhstan, and I don't mean uh, only ethnic Kazakhs, but rather the multi-ethnic society of Kazakhstan was really coming to a point that they wanted to have more agency about their own fate. Because during the Soviet period, everything was controlled by Moscow, from Moscow, and republics had very little say in, in how they lived and, and what happened to them. And of course, in the case of Kazakhstan, the Soviet nuclear testing program was such a powerful, in a bad way, manifestation of how little agency people had over their own destiny. And so against this background of more freedom in, in the Soviet Union uh, during the period of perestroika and glasnost, an anti-nuclear movement is born in Kazakhstan. And it's born because the information about radioactive fallout from one of the underground nuclear tests 
becomes public and it's picked up by a prominent Kazakh writer, Olja Sulemenov. And so very spontaneously, you have this massive public movement driven really from uh, bottom up. And, and it's an amazing story because it's 1989, no internet, no social media, and the fact that they, that they could organize so well and really push the central government to listen to them, to reduce first the number of tests, and then by 1989, they had to stop completely because it was impossible to continue testing when all these people were marching and they pro- they were protesting. I just wanted to jump in really quickly to say, number one, my listeners may hear underground nuclear tests and think that you mean secret nuclear tests. And that is not what was happening. Literally, these were nuclear detonations happening in underground caverns that had been dug into mountains. So just imagine, you know, feeling the ground shake and, you know, the earth split open. And it's because someone has done a literal underground nuclear detonation. So I had to make that clear. But also, you mentioned the fact that this these are communities, they don't have access to the internet. And yet they noticed so many similarities between their experiences and the experiences of people within the United States and the territories controlled by the United States who are experiencing the same problems. So we called them downwinders in the United States. People in the Marshall Islands certainly experienced many of the same harms that people in Kazakhstan did. And they were able to recognize this similarity in cause. And I just think that that's tremendous. So yeah, if you could go into that a little bit. Uh, Both tremendous, but also I think very moving. The Kazakh anti-nuclear movement was initially called Nevada, and only later they added Semipalatinsk. But I think it's so moving that from the very beginning, they wanted to feel united with uh, peace activists in the United States. They felt affinity for people in the United States and in other communities who were suffering from uh, nuclear tests in other parts of the world. So from the very beginning, there was this very international component to their fight because they wanted for all nuclear tests to stop in the world. And Jumping a little bit into the future, that's exactly what happened, actually. The Kazakh anti-nuclear movement led to to a moratorium on nuclear testing in the Soviet Union and in the United States. And then later, by 1996, we had a treaty, comprehensive test ban treaty that banned nuclear tests worldwide. So something that happened in the Kazakh steppe, it had this butterfly effect and had a huge impact on on the international legal environment uh, within a few few years. But also on a very interpersonal level, all those stories uh, are just so lovely of how people from the United States would come and support people of Kazakhstan and they would walk with them in those protests and in those rallies and then Activists from Kazakhstan would come to the U.S. and U.S. peace activists would teach them how to do their uh, protest activities uh, in a very effective way. And there was, I think, a lot of mutual inspiration and 
And I think it's 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 a good story of how people living literally across the world from each other can be united by common goals and just feel that they're together in the fights, in the in in the good fight, <laughs> in the good in in doing good trouble. Yes, as uh, John Lewis used to say of the United States, make good trouble. And for the lawyers who are listening, one thing that I really appreciated about the book is you are able to give a really inside look at the diplomacy that went on at the close of the Soviet Union. So just to to recap, when the Soviet Union dissolved, there were four republics that had nuclear weapons within them. It was Russia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine. And Russia was named the sort of inheritor state for the Soviet Union. And you and I are talking on April 13th. I'm going to locate this in time for our audience because, you know, many things uh, can and will change quickly when we talk about Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, it's impossible not to look at the concerns that we have been having for the past several months and certainly the years before about a nuclear power being out there. I can't imagine what it's been like for you to release the book so soon before the invasion, but I I would love for you to tell the audience a little bit about what the past couple months have been like for you with your knowledge of nuclear weapons and proliferation and seeing this happen in Ukraine, which was another Soviet republic. This question of uh, whether Russia is the inheritor of the Soviet Union is, I think, a very interesting one and for the lawyers to to discuss. But being not a lawyer, but as, as an observer of Russia's behavior and statements, I find it ironic that for... Things they want, such as the seat on the United Nations, for example, the position was that, yes, Russia is the inheritor of the Soviet Union, but for the things they don't want to associate themselves with, such as the impact of Soviet nuclear tests in Kazakhstan, suddenly it is, you know, we are Russia, the Soviet government is the government of the country that doesn't exist anymore and we bear no responsibility. So I just wanted to point out that this tension on the question of what Russia inherited. In terms of nuclear weapons as well, it wasn't a a decided conclusion from the early on, and this is where the United States played a very important role in terms of negotiations with all the three republics, but especially with Kazakhstan and Ukraine. Belarus was it had the least amount and it, it was the easiest case in terms of deciding to, to give everything up. But for for more than two years, it was actually a, a, an undecided question of who those weapons belong to, what's their formal legal status, who should be the inheritor and how everything should be worked out, uh, legally speaking. Releasing this book just before Russia invaded Ukraine and looking at what what is happening in Ukraine is extremely painful. As a Kazakh, I see many parallels, both in 
in the rhetoric, but also in in attitudes. And Kazakhstan, for example, starting from the times of uh, Tsarist Russia and then through the entire Soviet period, has gone through several moments in its history when there was such a disregard by Moscow to to culture, to national identity of Kazakhstan. And that's what we're observing in Ukraine with Russia's attitude to Ukraine. And I think that's why I take it just so personally on an emotional level. As I was reading a passage in the book about Russia's attitude towards Kazakhstan and rhetoric about how, well, that's not even a real country. You know, that's, and this total disregard to the Kazakh people and uh, history and, and culture, it read so close to what I was reading certain Russians say about Ukraine. Oh, it's not really its own nation, its own culture. So that was particularly striking to me as a reader of the book. I thought, oh my goodness, what a parallel. Exactly. And that shows that what Russia is doing in Ukraine is not some kind of fluke of history. There is actually a trend, and that's why I think we should really pay attention and we should respect what those states are saying when they worry about Russia, when they express their concern about Russia. But if I put my own emotions (laughs) aside on Ukraine, from the standpoint of norms, international norms, and very tightly connected to the nuclear story, I just wanted to mention that Ukraine and Kazakhstan were in similar position for both countries. Receiving security assurances from nuclear powers was fundamental. It was one of the main components of negotiations they were having with the United States and Russia when they were deciding on whether to give up their nuclear inheritance. Kazakhstan, same as Ukraine, signed the Budapest Memorandum in which Russia was one of the signatories and uh, which proclaimed that uh, there will be respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity of the countries that were giving up nuclear inheritance, nuclear weapons. And and so for me, as as somebody who works on, on the issues of global diplomacy, and uh, nuclear politics, what is happening now, what we're observing now, this complete disregard for international norms, I think it's just so detrimental. It, it just downgrades the value of the international documents that, that were signed in the 90s and that, you know, these countries, Belarus, Kazakhstan and Ukraine took very seriously. And for them, those assurances meant a lot. Mm-hmm. And with that, we are going to take a break to hear a word from our sponsors. And when we return, we are going to hear more about the research process behind this book. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. 
Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm here with Tokshan Kaseneva, author of Atomic Step, How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb. Now, Tokshan, this book, you mentioned it took 15 years to write, and part of that was the research process. Now, when you're dealing with something as secretive as a nation's nuclear program, it has to be pretty difficult to find the primary source documents that can back things up. And you mentioned in the book, for many years and for many reasons, certain things were purposefully not documented, especially when it came to the health impacts for the region of all this nuclear testing being done on their land. So when you wanted to tell this story, this story that arcs over 80 years, where did you start and how did you find so many people with a direct connection to be able to interview? Oh, you know, thank you for asking a research question because that's the most challenging but also the most fulfilling part of any writer's journey. I focused on the archival documents in three countries, in Kazakhstan, the United States, and Russia. And I also tried to interview anybody who would speak to me. Let me first address the the secrecy and the challenges of finding primary documents. I made sure that I would go to every archive that I thought could have something that that is relevant, uh, that was relevant to my uh, to my research. In Kazakhstan, I didn't have any issues in terms of access. I could work in the central archive of the president, or I also went to the regional archive in Semipalatinsk. Anything that was available in the archives, I could get, and it was a trove. It was really interesting to see some very interesting documents. I'll give you one example, how, for example, in the early 90s, the government of Kazakhstan repeatedly asked the government of Russia to give documents that would show, for example, where did uh, radioactive fallout occur, or they were asking document medical records of civilians, not the military, but civilians, because they wanted to understand what happened to their people and how they could help them. And I didn't find any any responses to those uh, requests. There were also very interesting cases of when, for example, uh, U.S.-Kazakh negotiations happened and I could read assessments from the Kazakh side and how they were preparing for negotiations and then go to the United States archives and and see how U.S. policymakers and diplomats were assessing the same events. And it was really interesting just to 
to look at those puzzles, to put these pieces together. I also went to Russia and in Russia, I had no issue working in the more regular archives, but unfortunately the archives that I truly needed, those of the Ministry of Defense or of the ministry that controls uh, nuclear weapons, I don't know what I was hoping for, but I went there in person, I submitted my official requests, and of course I received a very firm net because nuclear weapons are at the heart of uh, Russia's national security. And, and so I, I couldn't work with any uh, any documents from those more relevant archives. And, and so as a researcher, of course, I could feel that huge chunks of documentation were just not there. But I tried to, to work with everything that was available. Something that was really touching to read about were records that uh, doctors and scientists made in the 50s, in the 60s, when they were seeing these really quite terrifying signs that the people were being poisoned and, and deeply injured by the radiation some of these people who could have gotten into very, very deep trouble for recording any of this did their best in sometimes encoded ways to still record what had happened, almost like a message in a bottle to someone in the future who may be able to use this information or, or do something about it. And so just as a reader, you know, when you described some of those efforts, it, it didn't stop the harm, but it can tell us so much now about what was going on. And it was such a courageous thing to do. And specifically, you know, noting the kind of environment they were operating in, the fact that there was this three-year medical expedition by Kazakh doctors from the Institute of Regional Pathology who really were so brave that, you know, in the late 50s, that they f they felt their duty to record what they saw with clarity and with the ethics of medical professionals, I, know, knowing that they could have ended ended up in political prisons. And I I just feel such a sense of gratitude to people like that. And and these documents now are so important because it's a glimpse from, from that period, something that we can look at and, and read and, and get a glimpse of what was happening. And I think, you know, that's one of the lessons I also took from my own research is that sometimes it takes one person or a few people just to do the right thing, be courageous and, and do the right thing. And it can really have a very important impact many, many years after. But Lee, something that I didn't um, didn't answer, something that you've asked earlier about the interviews, that was also just such an enjoyable part of my research process. And also some interesting, I think, observations when you interview diplomats and policymakers, and especially if you talk to them about events that occurred 20 years ago, they usually focus on, on the positive and, and good sides and they remember things in a very 
positive way. And, and, and then as a researcher, it was just so much fun to say, okay, you are telling me that there were no issues in your negotiations in Kazakhstan, with, with Kazakhstan, but look at that cable you wrote, you know, here you sounded <laughs> quite concerned. And then uh, that person would be, oh, really? Could you please show me a copy? I want, I want to read and remind myself. And, and so sometimes it was this really, a process of discovery for both for myself as a researcher, but also for people who participated in those events. And, and they often wanted to be reminded, oh, what did I say back then? Oh, you know, I really also want to read it now with 20 years later and see how I truly felt back then. And But in addition to those interviews with policymakers and diplomats and scientists and technical specialists, the most important interviews were with the people who still live in the region, who carry the burden of, of the Soviet nu nuclear tests. And it's their stories that I wanted to profile with respect and as much care as, as I could. And one of those interviews that stays with me is your interview with an, an Uber driver, a man who uh, was born without a collarbones and who suffers uh, because of the effects that these nuclear tests had on on him and the genetic mutations that resulted. But you you speak to him and, and he's such an interesting human being and his attitude is is so enthralling. But it it just sticks with you when he talks about how he decided that he just wouldn't have children because he did not know you know, if he would be saddling another generation with the impact of the radiation that happened so many years ago, it just, and, and he just stays in my mind, I would say, uh, as one of the characters in the book who I, just, I think about him now having read the book, I think about him very frequently. And I'm so glad that you included the perspectives of these everyday people. Lee, and with your permission, may mention to that person that his story really stayed with you. I'm, I, I continue to yes, keep please. in touch with all the families and, and oh, with good. him. And, and, you know, for example, his story is such a demonstration of the unfairness. It's one thing if you decide not to have children for your own reasons, but for a person who probably wanted to become a father and to 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 have to make this decision for reasons that are not your own that you know that the destiny was imposed on you by somebody else i find it so unjust and and unfair and it's stories like that of him or the children that i've met i think for me it's just such a reminder that when we talk about nuclear politics or nuclear deterrence or nuclear weapons as something abstract, we truly do not uh, show any respect to all those people who are actually paying the price for nuclear arsenals. Absolutely. And just so the listeners know, in Atomic Step, you look at the period of time when these nuclear tests were being performed. You look at the period of time during which people were protesting this and how Kazakhstan ended up dealing diplomatically with what nuclear weapons were, were 
on their soil and making these decisions that they they had to make now that they were an independent country. Uh, but you also look at how Kazakhstan now is approaching not just nuclear weapons, which it's banned, but nuclear science. Uh, I, I do think that we should mention that one of the resources in Kazakhstan is are huge uranium deposits. And Kazakhstan has a big mining industry, oil, gas. These are natural resources that the country has to decide how it wants to approach. And so I thought it also was very interesting that you went into, okay, this is a country that has these natural resources. Now, how are they going to decide how to use them. So could you just tell us a little bit about what is the status of the nuclear industry in Kazakhstan right now? Not weapons, but just the nuclear industry. Kazakhstan is extremely rich in terms of natural resources. It's number one producer of uranium. And I think it's interesting to observe how, as a country, Kazakhstan is walking this line it's definitely against nuclear weapons, but it's very supportive of nuclear technology for peaceful purposes. And in that sense, the continuation of the nuclear industry, which was based on, on the Soviet inheritance, was very important uh, for the government. In the early 90s, as the country plunged into economic crisis with all the economic ties with other republics being disrupted, nuclear industry went into uh, a complete crisis. The facilities, they didn't have any orders or almost all production has stopped. But by mid-90s, you see this resurrection of the industry. And, and now, the, for example, the national company that produces uranium is doing very well. And Kazakhstan is trying to position itself as one of the advanced players on the commercial nuclear scene. So in that sense, there is this investment into the peaceful side of, of nuclear technology. There is no rejection of, of it, at least at the level of the government. It's very different in, when we speak about the society, because I think the society is still very traumatized by the experience of the Soviet nuclear tests. So the population in general is quite anti-nuclear power. Kazakhstan doesn't have nuclear power plants at, at the moment. Every few years, there is a discourse on whether Kazakhstan should in introduce nuclear power plants. And, and as I've mentioned, the population is, 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 is quite against, but the government thinks that it's something that is needed for, uh, for the energy mix. And, and bringing again, you know, back to today and the geopolitics of, of today's world, the most recent discussion about Kazakhstan introducing nuclear power plants was in the context of Russia building nuclear power plants in Kazakhstan. But I think with what's happening now with Russia and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and also irresponsible behavior of Russian military in relation to Ukraine's nuclear facilities, I think geopolitically and just from the point of view of Decisions of a country, I, I hope that the government of Kazakhstan would pause and, and give it a good thought about who do you allow to build nuclear power plants on your soil? How much do you trust them? 
not to mention all the other challenges that would have to be overcome in terms of nuclear safety, security, and earning trust from the society. So it's 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 still a very complicated story for Kazakhstan, I would say, dealing with the tragic past, trying to build up nuclear science, and and having all this tension within within the society. Well, I really do recommend Atomic Step for anyone who's looking for what is very approachable and readable book that shows kind of a case study of a country having to deal with the legacy of these nuclear tests and, you know, what's the way forward. And especially as we are all concentrating on Ukraine and worrying about Russian nuclear weapons, you know, I always feel like having more information (laughs) makes me feel better. And I think that many of my listeners will probably agree. You may be more aware of some of the scarier things, but then at least it's something you know about. So if, aside from Atomic Step, you had another few things that you would recommend my listeners listen to, read, pick up, what would be your recommendation for anyone who now wants to dig more into this area? Oh, I'm so glad to have this chance to promote a book of my friend and colleague, a a Ukrainian scholar, Mariana Bujerin. She has a book coming out uh, very soon. It's called Inheriting the Bomb. And it's exactly almost the same story. uh, uh, my, My book is about Kazakhstan and her book is about Ukraine going through the same questions and and she describes how Ukraine was dealing with its nuclear inheritance. And I'm just so excited that this book is coming out. And I think uh, your audience would really enjoy it. Mariana Bujerin, the book is called Inheriting the Bomb. And the other book I want to recommend that just came out and that also took um, a, a long time um, to, to come out, to be researched and is excellent. It's written by Robert Jacobs, and it's called Global Hibakusha. And his book is about all these communities in all the different parts of the world uh, who suffered from uh, nuclear tests. I I highly recommend that book too. So this would be my top two new books to check out. And the word Hibakusha may not be recognizable to some of my listeners. Could you say what, what Hibakusha means? Hibakusha is a Japanese word to identify the victims of uh, nuclear bombs in in Japan. And I liked how uh, Robert uses the phrase global Hibakusha just to show that actually it's not only about the communities that experienced um, a nuclear bomb or nuclear tests. It's actually the entire world. We are all under the global nuclear fallout. And and so in a way, each of us is to an extent a hibakusha, a person who experienced the negative impact of of radiation because of nuclear weapons programs. Well, Tolkien, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. Again, the book is Atomic Step, How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb by Togjan Kasenova. And I want to thank all of my listeners for tuning into this episode. If you enjoyed, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite listening service. And if you'd like to reach out with a book recommendation for a future episode, you can do so at books at abajournal.com.